Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Larry Vold. Find your sermon outline there in your bulletin, if you wouldn't mind, and let's make our way to the book of Leviticus, please. Leviticus. You say, where's that? Probably the cleanest part of your Bible. third book of the Old Testament. Going to be spending eight weeks looking at this book. Eight weeks in the book of Leviticus. I'm really excited about this book because it says a lot to us. It says a lot to the church. says a lot to our lives as Christians. This might be the first sermon series you've ever heard on the book of Leviticus. This might be the first sermon you've ever heard on the book of Leviticus. And we have the privilege of studying God's word. And because here at Neighborhood Church, we love God's Word, we believe that the whole counsel of God's Word should be taught, not just the parts we like or the parts that are more familiar to us. All of God's Word is good for us. And this will be a little different series for some of us. Some of our series might be a little easier listening, might be a little more familiar. This, this series may challenge you to dig a little deeper, and I'm going to challenge you to do that. You're going to have to do a little reading. I can't say everything I need to say about this book in eight weeks. Prom- I promise you that. No possible way. And you're probably going to hear after each message, you're going to think, oh my goodness, he didn't talk about this or he didn't talk about that. You're right. I can't talk about everything in this series. I can't unload all the things that I have in my heart even to share with you. Um, But that means you're going to have to do a little work on your own, and I hope you will. Let's just do a little intro to this series, and I'm going to try to be as brief as I can because the sermon is on the back side of the page. The first part is the introduction to this book. So if you're taking notes... A little bit about the title of the book. My Bible just says Leviticus. What does Leviticus mean? It just means pertaining to the Levites. Who were the Levites? They were the worship leaders. They were the priests in the Old Testament. They were the ones that sacrificed the offerings that were brought before the Lord. There was one great high priest, and then the rest were the priests. They carried out the work of worship before God's people. The author and date of the book, Leviticus was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was the brother of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, deliverer of God's people and great prophet of Israel around or at about the time of 15th century B.C. So that puts it in the framework of the historical narrative of the Bible. Contained in this book are the instructions that God gave Moses pertaining to the laws that regulated the worship of God among his people, rules for worship, and then living holy lives. Much more on that later. The placement of the book in the Old Testament canon of Scripture, it's the centerpiece of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, or as some people relate to, the Torah, which is the commands of God. And of course, when we think of the law of God, we think of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Uh, But we know also from this whole section of Scripture, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, there are over 600 commands given to God's people. It was written during the period of time when the Israelites camped at Sinai. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that God brought his people out of Egypt. They were under bondage, under Pharaoh's bondage, slavery, and God delivered them with a mighty hand. The book of Exodus has an amazing story of God's great deliverance. And three months into this uh, journey, they come to Mount Sinai, and it's at Mount Sinai that God speaks the message of his law. He 
ratifies the covenant with his people. Can you imagine? There are all, over a million uh, slaves that come out of Egypt. They're Hebrew people, and now they're at, the Mount, they're at Mount Sinai, and Moses is up on the mountain, and you've been greatly delivered, but you don't know this God that has delivered you. And the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy really chrono- uh, give us a, a beautiful cataloging uh, and chronology of the way God shared his law, which was a way of making covenant with his People. There are some of us here today that know things about this God, but we've never entered into covenant. We've never entered into relationship. And for the Old Testament and New Testament believers, really it's the same. It's through faith. We believe in what God has done, and we come to him by faith. So that's the placement of the book. Its relationship comes right out of Exodus and flows right on in continuity, the book of Leviticus. The prominence of this book in the Old Testament cannot be uh, overstated. It's the first book you would learn as a Hebrew. It's the first book you would learn. You would memorize it because this is the way you would learn how to approach a holy God. I find it interesting. It's the last book that many Christians ever go to. Acceptable worship and how to do it without dying in the process as we learn from the book of Leviticus. It's not uh, a, a simple thing necessarily. If your heart is not right when you bring your offering, if there's sin in your life, there are things, capital punishments that could take place all under the old covenant. Thank you, Jesus, that he fulfilled the whole covenant. He fulfilled the ratification of our relationship with God. He did it when Jesus, when his son Jesus came to earth, died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. So Jesus fulfills all the law. Thank the Lord for that. But the prominence is, is found in this book in an, in an amazing way. Over 40 times in the New Testament this book is spoken of or referred to. The problem with this book, and I don't mean that there's an inherent problem with the book, but when it comes to looking and studying this book, let me give you a couple things that you just want to jot down quickly. Number one, it's not an easy read. Uh, this is uh, the book where every read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year schedule goes to die, okay? And some of you, let's be honest. We started reading Genesis, beginnings, beautiful, Exodus, great delivery, lots of drama. Come to Leviticus, it's just screeching halt because we don't understand sacrifices. We don't understand the offerings. We don't understand the priestly role. We, so much of what is in Leviticus is not a part of our daily experiences. So we sort of shut the book and we say, well, I guess Jesus fulfilled it. I don't really need to understand this stuff. Well, remember that all of God's word is important for us. And so as a result of not an easy read, it's, it's not very familiar to us. Not very familiar. Um, and like I said at the beginning of the message, uh, Le- thank you, uh, Leviticus, <laughs> Leviticus uh, talks a lot, about, um, a lot about things that are difficult to understand, and so it's, it's, it's very unfamiliar to us. And it doesn't seem very relevant or enriching to our spiritual lives at a glance. Uh, I mean, even knowing that Christ has fulfilled the law, we tend to assume, therefore, that it isn't necessary. I mean, what do the sacrifices mentioned in chapters 1 through 7 really have to do with us? And what does uh, dietary laws or mold on a garment or bodily discharges have to do with my relationship with God? It all seems antiquated and somewhat irrelevant, but I can promise you, I assure you, that there is straight lines of relevance in this book for all of us. And the job of the preacher and the job of the learner is to see the timeless principles of things that were found and set in time so that we can claim along with the scripture that all of it is inspired by God and all of it is profitable for us. 
And I have to admit, I've steered away from teaching through this book for all the reasons that I've shared above. I, I, I've wondered if preaching Leviticus, I might cause an exodus. <laughs> but I really believe that this is going to be an exciting study for us. And because it's somewhat unfamiliar to us, it might be kind of new in a sense that, wow, I didn't know this was in God's Word. And I didn't know how this applied to my life. Let's talk about the structure of the book really quickly. The structure, it's divided into two sections, basically. Chapters 1 through 16 is all about my approach to God, worshiping God in an appropriate way, chapters 1 through 16. Chapter 16 is the hinge chapter of the book. It focuses on the Day of Atonement. It's the only other place besides the consecration of the priest where we actually have narrative in the book. And that's another reason why the book is hard because it's rules and rituals and there's just two little sections of narrative. Chapter 16 is one of those sections. It talks about the great day of atonement. Jesus fulfilled all that when he died on the cross. The day of atonement to the Old Testament Jew is Good Friday for the New Covenant Christian. It's a reality that Christ has paid it all. He's paid the price. So the first part of the book is all about approaching God in worship. And the last part of the book, chapter 17 all through 27, is about living out in an appropriate way, living a holy life in response to the way God has called us to live. So that's the book. It's structured very easy. It's two sections, and it's not, not rocket science. Uh, someone has uh, very rightly assumed or, or related to the book of saying that the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 16, is love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and chapters 17 through 27 is love your neighbor as yourself. Because you'll never do better for your neighbor than when you're living in honor to God's word, his specific commands. That's the best way to love your neighbor. And that's what we're going to learn about in this book. The importance of the book, why should we study it? Well, number one, I already said it's God's word. It's God's word. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I love Romans 15.4 that says, everything that was written in the past was written in order to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's a great reminder that everything in Scripture has a specific purpose and plan. Number two, the reason why we study this book is because it's about holiness. It's about holiness. It will encourage a clearer picture of God. God is holy and his expectation for those who belong to him. The theme verse in Leviticus is chapter 19, verse 2. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's quoted in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's the, it's the line and the theme that kind of runs through the book. And I think that there's no more important word for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this day and age and for believers in Christ than the word holiness. I think we've lost a concept of what holiness is about. We are so soft and compromised in our approach. We are stained by the world's sins. And the book of Leviticus is going to give us a plumb line, a clear vision of what holiness looks like when we come to a God that is perfect and a God that says, in response to my covenant relationship with you, you live a godly life. And that's something that we don't hear enough about in today's world. Thirdly, it's about Jesus. Write that down. It's about Jesus. On every page of this book, we see Jesus everywhere. Even today where we look at the tabernacle that God set up among his people, John chapter 1 verse 14, 
the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that's the word tabernacle. It's, it's all about Jesus. And remember in the Gospel, Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, remember Jesus after his resurrection came upon these guys? And Luke records saying that, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So we know that Jesus is in Leviticus, and he's everywhere in this book. He is the burnt offering, the grain offering, the, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. He's all of that to us. He's the one that restores our relationship with God and keeps us in right relationship with each other. He's the great high priest, Aaron. He's the priestly, he, he performs the priestly service of daily cleansing in our lives. He is the one that lives out in complete fulfillment all the detail of the law so that in Christ we are seen as holy before a righteous God. He's everywhere in this book. See Jesus like you've never seen him before. So let's talk about just the background of the book really quickly and we're going to do that by taking a little walk through the last part of the book of Exodus. But the, the focus of this series is called, I've called this series, The Way of Holiness. And what I mean by the way of holiness is that there are, I call, eight markers in this book that describe what the way of holiness is about. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And you don't have to write these down. I'm just giving you the sermon titles for the series. But today we're looking at focusing on God. Next week we looked at admitting our need. This is the way of holiness. We must first focus on God. We must admit our need. We must come and worship. That's week number three. We must stay clean in our lives. That's week number four. We must trust his forgiveness. Week number five. We must reflect his holiness. Week number six. We must take time to celebrate and those are the feast days of Israel, which we'll look at carefully. That's a beautiful portrait. Take time to celebrate. And lastly, week eight, we're going to look at keeping our vows. What happens when we honor God and his word the way he tells us to? So this is the theme of the book. It's the way of holiness. I want you to get on the way with me, and let's take the challenge and go. Now, when we think of the book of Leviticus, we really can't launch into it without getting a quick overview of the last few chapters of the book of Exodus. And if you have your Bibles and you're quick, you're already in Leviticus, just flip back a few pages to chapter 25, and I'm just going to walk you literally in one paragraph through what takes place between chapter 25 and where we land today, okay, with this, with what we're about to launch into. So in chapter 25, here's what's happening. God asks Moses up on the mountain to build for him a temporary dwelling. This would be the place where God would assure his people of his provision and protection as they embarked from Mount Sinai and went on their way to the promised land. Now in Exodus 25, we see a preview of what lays ahead. God gave the terms and conditions of the covenant that was found in the Ten Commandments and other laws that God gave to his people. Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights where God instructs Moses in Pekion on verse 25, chapter 25, verse 8, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. So this covenant God that is this other, who is this God? Who is Yahweh? Who is Jehovah God? God says, I'm going to build a, I want you, Moses, to build a temporary shelter where I'm going to actually live among the people. And, of course, we know that that was to be built right in the center of God's people. It was in the center of the camp that this tabernacle would be built. 
Now, still on the mountain, God gives precise instructions to Moses about how to build the temple. We see that in chapters 25, 26, and 27. It's dimensions and all that will go into it. He then instructs Moses about the consecration and ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests, chapters 28 and 29. Are you following? After all this, Moses comes back down off the mountain because God says, you need to go down. The people have already violated the covenant. And Moses comes down and there's the golden calf and everybody's worshiping God in their own self-styled way and they've erected an idol to do that. And of course, Moses displays his anger. Chapter 32, he breaks the tablets and after a very dark day in the camp where severe judgment falls upon those who rebelled against God and broke his laws, Moses goes back up on the mountain to receive two more tablets, once again encounters the glory of God and is assured by God that his presence would still remain with his people. He gives Moses additional instructions about the tabernacle, how to build it, who will build it, and upon coming back down off the mountain, the workmen get started. Chapter 36, they get started. And after it was built, according to God's specifications, and everything's placed in its proper arrangement, we won't look at all that today, properly inspected by Moses himself, chapter 40, verse 33, says this, So Moses finished the work. So here we have this, what we might call the ground zero of God's divine presence. Picture this like a giant RV that is going to travel with the children of Israel all through their wilderness wanderings. And everywhere they go, that's going to be there. The tabernacle is going to be there. In fact, let's pick it up and read now of how this tabernacle was going to impact their lives. And the whole book of Leviticus is around what happens at the tent of meeting, synonymous with the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Without taking a breath, verse 1 of Leviticus 1. And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now this is a bit radical. Again, up to this point, God is only speaking to Moses on the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And for the first time, God is going to speak now while he's actually spoken to Moses at a a temporary little shelter that Moses has set outside the camp. But now everything has moved in. And the moment the the tabernacle was finished, and later the temple would replace the tabernacle, the moment the tabernacle is finished, the glory of God descends on this place. And the glory is so thick, Moses can't even go inside. This is an amazing portrait. I want to give you three, three... Three issues or three things of what it means to focus on God from this text that we're looking at this morning. This is just an intro to the book, but these three things form for us where we're going in this series. Number one, if you're taking notes, focusing on God means being perceptive of his majesty. Say the word majesty. I'm using the word majesty here as a learning key for what follows in the sermon, if you know how I do sermons. 
But the synonym for majesty here in the text, verse 34 and 35, is glory. God's glory is manifested here as the tabernacle is completed and this transitional tent of meeting where Moses would go and meet with God is acceptable to him, accessible to him, but he can't go in because of the thick cloud that has descended upon it. God's glory is just so thick. What a scene this must have been to witness God's glory in this way. Now, earlier in the book of Exodus, we know that when the people saw Moses go up and meet with God, chapter 19, it says that they saw Moses go up to the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended in the fire. The smoke billowed from it, the smoke like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain viol- uh, violently trembled, and the sound of the trumpet grew, grew louder and louder. That's Exodus, third, uh, Exodus 19, verses 17 through 19. And as the people saw that, they trembled in fear. In fact, it says in chapter 20, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. You get the picture that God's glory, we think, oh, we yearn for the glory of the Lord. But when the people saw the glory of the Lord, they ran in fear. It was that uh, consuming, that terrifying you know, this past week I took a couple of days with my son-in-law. We went up into the high Sierras and, and we, you know, the day started. It was a beautiful, sunny day and, and it was very, you know, warm and we started seeing some clouds form and we ended up, we took a hike and we ended up at this little lake and we were doing some fishing and we're just on the shore and we're just kicking back a beautiful, we're just both commenting about how beautiful God's creation is and just amazing, how majestic, how glorious it is. And then these clouds got darker and darker and darker and then we started hearing rumbles of thunder and the thunder was getting a little louder, and it was kind of, we we're just like, this is beautiful. This is so gorgeous, and we're just enjoying. I'm, you know, throwing the little lure out there, and pretty soon some drops start hitting the lake, and it's warm outside, and the drops are just kind of big drops. First little drops, and then big drops, but they're kind of like falling every four feet or so. We don't even feel like we're getting wet. We're like, this is so beautiful. And then all of a sudden it got a little more intense, and the wind picked up, and suddenly the thunder was just thunderous. And we said, we better get out of here. So we, we, we picked up our stuff and we scurried back to where our camp was, just a little ways from where we were fishing. And we we're trying to get our tent and suddenly all heaven broke loose. And it started raining pretty hard. And then hail the size of marbles. I'd never seen hail like this. I mean, they're getting, wha- I'm in this tent and Josh is outside the tent getting whacked back and forth. And and, and finally we get in, so now we got a, I got this little two-man tent, and he and I and the dog are in this tent, and thunder like you've never heard, and just crashing around us, and it was, I have to admit, it was glorious and beautiful, but a little scary. And I thought to myself after that, I've been thinking about that ever since. You know, the thunder was beautiful when it was at a distance. It wasn't so beautiful when it was, you saw the light, and then you know, the crack of thunder and lightning. And I thought, wow, if that's just a reflection of God's creation, what must his glory really be like? And I have a feeling a lot of us, this is why we don't get so close to God, because when you get close to God, everything gets revealed in your life. The junk in your life, the stuff that you wish you, didn't be, you weren't a part of, the things that you compromise. You can't come into the presence of God without sort of this, this uh, reality of, of who he is. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews was getting at 
And remember, Hebrews is the companion book to Leviticus. And if you don't, in fact, we studied the book of Levitic, uh, Hebrews a couple years ago. I wish we had done Leviticus first because Hebrews doesn't make a whole lot of sense in some areas unless you understand Leviticus. Anyway, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, let's read this out loud together. Ready? Here we go. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That is Leviticus language. Let us worship God acceptably. This is the very issues, issue that the Israelites were facing as they entered into this covenant with Jehovah God. How does one approach a God whose glory is like consuming fire? How do we approach God who is so consuming? And the answer to that is simple. If you're taking notes, I'll just say it. We approach God the way he prescribes. We don't worship the way we want to worship. We worship in a way that honors him. Now, how do we approach God? We approach God, listen, the prescription of the Old Testament is found right here in the book of Leviticus. This is how we approach God through offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and then at the Day of Atonement, the one offering for all of our sin. But how do we approach God today? We approach God the one prescribed way that God tells us we come through Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, of all the Old Testament law. He is the fulfillment of it all, so we come to Jesus through him. Listen, just like in the book of Leviticus, we need an offering, and we need a priest to come and worship God acceptably. In the New Testament, we need an offering. It's Jesus, what he did when he died on the cross for our sins, and we need a priest. He is the great high priest of our faith. Hebrews tells us we come to God in God's prescribed way. And when that happens, there's something glorious that takes place. Take your hand quickly, go over to Leviticus chapter 9. Let me just show you. This is after the consecration of the priests. This is where people have come to worship before God. And look at what happens. This first day of public worship in the life of God's people, verse 24, chapter 9. Fire came, down, came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. We'll talk about all that next week. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell face down. Now, I'd like you to underline that in your Bible, if you have your own Bible there, because I want to show you, I want to remind you of what worship is about. It has two facets to it. Worship has both gravity and gladness. I think John Piper says that, and I'm just stealing it this morning. Gravity and gladness. There should be sobriety, reverence, amazing submission. We come before God in His holiness carefully, recognizing that He is not who we are. And every time I hear people say, well, I just, the big man upstairs, we're just like, I think, you don't understand. This is not how we address God. God is holy. He's other than us. We come with gravity, but watch this. We come with gratitude. We come with joy. Our singing, our worship should be filled with a fervor of God's joy in our hearts because he has fulfilled it all. By the way, since you're taking notes, which I hope you are, Here's the point I'm hoping you tap into in the, in, as one of the great truths of Leviticus. This book is all about worship. It's all about worship. 
it invokes appropriate worship. We come into the presence of God and in knowing Him and seeing who He is and His glory and His power and His might, it invokes to, in us worship, just like it did with my son-in-law as we sat on that hillside after the storm and after the storm had cleared and saw the brilliance of the stars and the glory of God shining forth from the heavens. There's something about just creation itself which says there's a God who deserves to be worshipped. And that's just creation. I mean, there's a million other ways that God shows us his glory and his power, not the least of which is through his son. We beheld his glory, John says, glory full of grace and truth, John chapter 1, verse 18. So it, this book is, is a book all about the, the glory of God, the majesty of God, and therefore it's a book about worship. And remember, if we don't honor the son, we don't honor the father. And Jesus said that in John 5, 23. There's no acceptable worship apart from approaching God through his son, Jesus. It's not through philosophy. It's not through works. It's not through sincerity. It is through Jesus that we come, and it is only through Jesus that we come. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And if you don't know that, you haven't read your Bible. And that's squarely focused in the book of Leviticus for all of us today. So that's the first thing I noticed just in the intro to this book, that the, the glory filled the, temple, the tabernacle. Moses couldn't go in. Let me show you something else about this. Focusing on God means also being sensitive to his movement. Perceptive of his majesty, sensitive to his movement. Verses 36 through 38 reminds us that the children of Israel didn't move unless the fire by night or the cloud by day moved. And there were times, Numbers chapter 9 verses 15 through 23 tells us that that was an intricate thing. Sometimes they stayed one day, sometimes they stayed a week, sometimes it was a month or a longer season, and sometimes even longer than that. And that kind of reminds me that all of us today are in seasons of our lives. Some of us feel a little stuck. We feel like we've been in the same place. It's time to move on. We don't really, what is God doing in our lives? The book of Leviticus is a reminder to us that when he moves, we move. We move in concert to his will. And it's being sensitive to his movement where we begin to understand a little bit more about what this book is about. And, and a lot of us are proficient at thinking about God's presence at certain times in our lives. This perception of God's presence is really important. But we sort of put it in compartments. Like we come to church and we go, okay, I'm going to focus on God today. But then we leave here and we become different people. Sometimes it only takes a walk to the parking lot to transform us into different people. Have you noticed that? So we leave the presence of God and we go and we say, well, God was back there. Now I'm back in my life. Or we leave our church facility and we go into our day. Tomorrow we start a new work week. Most of us do. Maybe we're already working, whatever. We start a new work week and, and we might be grumpy or we might be lazy. We just turn into different people. We were in the presence of God, but now we're different. I believe that some of the greatest fights in families happen on their way to church or on their way home from church. Couples arguing, people not getting along. Why is it that we, we leave God in the church? And that's one of the things that we learn in Leviticus is that God can't be left anywhere. The point of Leviticus is sticking around where God is and staying focused on him and letting the grid of everything you look at be filtered through the presence of God. One commentator says it this way. He says, in Leviticus, we come to see that God's people knew no distinction between God's presence in worship or sex, in prayer, or in personal hygiene, in spirituality, or in relationships with neighbors. They viewed no hard line between the sacred and the secular. 
a lot of us have this problem as we put God in a box, we compartmentalize, and the one thing Leviticus, I hope, will remind us of is that everything belongs to God. Every part of our lives, our thought life, our behaviors, everything. We can't separate it out. It's kind of like we want to include God and be mindful of his presence when we, when we think we need him, and then we leave him out when we think we don't. It's kind of like when I go to Home Depot and, uh, and I need to get a tool to fix something in my house. And the tool I'm always looking for is duct tape. Okay, that's, what, that's, a, that's the tool that I look for. And so I'll walk in and I'll say, you know, to some guy, I'll say, where's the duct tape? And the person will say, oh, it's, it's down that aisle. You go three di- aisles down and then back over there like on the third acre back there. That's where you, you know. So, so and he said, do you want me to take you there? And I'll, I'll always say, no, no, I got it from here. And then I'm, you know, like wandering around the store <laughs> forever because I can't seem to follow the directions. That's maybe a poor example of what I find in the book of Leviticus about the way we come to God. We need his counsel. We need his guidance. We may do that in church or in a quiet time on a morning, but then we go out in our day. We leave God in his Bible. We leave God in his church, and we live our own ways until we get just enough in trouble to say, where is God? Well, we left him behind. We didn't need to. We, that's because we compartmentalized. We forgot that when we walked out of the church, God was walking with us. We forgot that when we had that harsh word for our spouse, he was right there in the conversation. We forget that we defile him in a number of ways with our thoughts and our words and our actions all times during the day. And what we need to turn that around and invert it to see that in my practical lifestyle, in my hygiene, in my diet, in my sexual practices, in my relationships, in my cleanliness, in my bodily functions, when I get sick and when I'm well, in all things, God is here, like the book of Ephesians says, he is in all things, through all things, and we need to see that. So this book, if you're taking notes, this book is about wholeness. It's not only about worship, it's about wholeness. It's seeing God in the moment with us. It's recognizing his presence is with us. Now think about the Old Testament saints for a minute. Just think about this. I mean, there they were, a big camp out as they moved through the wilderness, and God is right in the center of the camp. So always, there was always a view to the tabernacle. Always is a reminder that this is where God is going to speak and this is where I bring my offering. This is, this is the centerpiece of worship in my life. And I need that reminder in my life all the time. It's, I remember years ago I was camping with my family and we showed up and I, I started setting up camp and right across the way from us is another family from our church. And I didn't really know them that well and I could just see on the husband's face, oh, the pastor is here <laughs> kind of thing. He didn't know how much fun I really was. And it ended up to be kind of a fun week, but I've thought about that at different times. What would it be like to have God camping next door? What would it be like if God moved in next door? You know, I, I've done a lot of weddings and marriages for people, and I, I'm oftentimes not invited to the bachelor party. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that's because, and I don't mean... I. Sincere Christ followers, they have a lot of fun at bachelor parties and, you know, the gals do their thing, the guys do their thing. But, but I'm just saying that sometimes we really don't want a reminder of God's presence in our lives. And this is that subjugation. This is that, you know, compartmentalization that we do. We say, God, you can stay over here, but that's it. No. The book of Leviticus is, sorry, God's in the center of the camp and he sees everything. And he wants to have impact on the way we think and the way we talk and the way we live our lives. This book is about wholeness. 
Remember Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, this is John 14, we'll put it on the screen, John 14, 17. The world cannot accept him, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. That's awesome. Later in chapter 14, verse 20, just a couple verses down. On that day, Jesus said, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Do you realize that? Jesus In John 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I said that word dwell there means tabernacle. This is Leviticus language in John chapter 1. Jesus came and set up camp right in the middle of our lives. And so we don't have the choice of saying, well, I don't don't want God around me today. Sorry. He's everywhere. And I don't mean in a pantheistic way like the pagans who believe that God's in that chair, in that music stand. It means that God occupies uh, all places at one time. And he, he, when we come to know him through faith in Jesus, his son, he actually comes and lives within us. And so it's a mockery to think that we can leave God out of stuff. And we, we, we quench and grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we say, ah, I got it from here. I'll take it from here. This book is about wholeness. So many of us are broken. All of us are broken. We're going to learn next week that we have to admit our need, that we're broken people, and that's what sacrifice is about. God told his people how to come to him appropriately with sacrifices that met, that, that, that dealt with the, the brokenness of their lives so they could be healed, so they could be whole again. The word holiness, we have the word wholeness that comes out of that word. It's, it's a word that describes two sides of the same coin. To be rightly related to God and live a godly life is to really be whole. And many of us are just so broken that's why this is a great series to invite people to because I'll guarantee it, there's a ton of brokenness out there. Remember a couple weeks ago we prayed for our friend Mark who was going into jail for a little stint because of what happened in his life? I got a letter from him and I just opened it this morning. It just came in the mail. And he says, he says a bunch of things, but he says, so far I've had the privilege of witnessing to 14 brothers. I know that's not even half of the 50 that I'm rooming with, so please pray for me to continue planting seeds. Even though I do not have half of the street and gang knowledge and experience as these brothers do, I constantly see how versatile the love of Jesus and the Bible are. Jesus is the air I breathe and the Bible is my food. I have nothing without those two things. There's a lot of pain and brokenness here, but these two things have become natural painkillers. That's awesome. So keep praying for Mark. Jesus is the air we breathe. The word of God is is what heals our brokenness. So this book is about worship. It's about wholeness. It's also focusing on God means being responsive to his message. And I know we're out of time. I need to wrap this up. But it's being responsive to his message. And I move us now to the first opening of this book where it says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And when God speaks to Moses, which of course means that God is speaking to us too, God's word is the record of his spoken word, showing us the significance that all this happened at Sinai, showing us that, that God is wanting to reveal his word to us so that we can worship him acceptably and live holy lives. And what is the outcome of God actually speaking into our lives? It's the transformative power of his word to make us into his image, to obey all that is written in it. The theme verse of this book is chapter 19, verse 2, and I've already said it. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
And you are to be holy to me, chapter 20, verse 26, because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart for the nations to be my own. You know the outgrowth, the anticipated outcome of a holy life? Watch this. is a life that has power behind witness. If you're taking notes, this book is about our witness. It's about the peculiarity of God's people. We are a peculiar people. And someone will say, oh, yeah, we are, meaning we're weird. But that's not what the Bible means by a peculiar people. It means that we should be set apart. We should be different. I find that in the church of Jesus Christ and in my own life, I have a tendency to want to blend with the culture that I'm trying to reach. You find that in your life? So easy to blend. So easy to be like and look like the world. God is telling his people through Leviticus, and it will be different what he says to them than what is being said to us in this day and age, but the principles are the same. He says, you need to reflect my glory and my holiness. You need to be so distinctly different from the culture you're in that people say, what in the world is up with that person? I wish, I wish Christians, I wish the church of Jesus Christ was known more for the things we are for than the things we are against. And they both have to be represented. Don't get me wrong. But the culture that's out there thinks that what we're about is saying no to this and no to that. And what, what we need to be is so distinctly different in the way we love, in the way we forgive, and in the holiness that's seen in our lives. And I don't know about you, but that is one big gulp when I say those words from my own heart. When was the last time somebody bumped into you or me and said, I'm sorry, I just can't help but to notice. You live such a radically godly life. What is up with that? It's attractive. When was the last time you had a conversation like that? They're few and far between. Because we're known more, oftentimes, for either not caring, not loving, not forgiving, not reaching out in acts of kindness and love, so that our righteousness becomes beautiful and attractive to a world that is dead and broken in its sin. This is a message for the church, beloved. It's a message for us. Peter writes, 2 Peter 3.11, Since everything is to be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's what Leviticus is asking. You ought to live holy and godly lives. Philippians 2.4 14, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Leviticus is just explodes in the New Testament with a peculiarity of a holy people that is a holy priesthood, that is a chosen people that is sent out, as Jesus said, to be salt and light in the world. You're going to take the challenge? Be holy, God says, as I am holy. This book is about worship, it's about wholeness, and it's about witness. Take the journey. Let's pray. Lord, I know we're going to be plowing through some big stuff in this book, and I am excited about it. Lord, for the last couple of months, you've been working things in my heart and you're, you've got a lot to do, Lord, in this heart of mine. And I want to thank you, Lord, for loving me and that 
none of it, none of what I attempt to do to live godly is based on my merit. It's all based on what Jesus, you did for me. And so I just proclaim your glory and thank you, Lord, that the, the war is over, the, the battle is, is, is over in the sense that, that I don't have to fight or work for my salvation. It's secure in Christ. And so, Lord, set us free on that. Help us to see you, Jesus, in all of this book and remind us as we leave here in just a few short minutes that you go with us. And if there's someone here today that does not have a relationship with you, may they open that moment today by simply saying, Jesus, if you are who this pastor is saying you are and what your word is saying, I want to know you. And would you make that your prayer today? He'll, he'll do plenty to show you what it means to follow him if your heart is set on him this morning. And for any of us who are Christ followers, I have a feeling that there's a lot of things that have to happen in our lives to get a better view of God's holiness and for his holiness to transform us. So whisper a prayer to the Lord for this in your own life today. And Lord, thank you. Bless your name. Help us to respond in a way that's appropriate now as we just sit before you in these final couple of minutes just to recognize, Lord, your holiness and our need for your holiness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.